Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to episode 225 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the great Mr. Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend? Oh, you know, just into into August. Happy August to you, Leslie. Hope you are celebrating accordingly. I've been to a couple of Dodger games lately, and yeah, that's that's how I celebrate summer, is by going to a lot of baseball games. Oh, I celebrate summer by turning on my air conditioning, finally, but now it's currently off because we don't want to mess with the audio of the podcast, so let's get down to business so I can turn it back on. <laughs> Sounds good, but you know, we're going to get into our mini mailbag to start because, again, slow week of news and not a lot of deals during the strikes. But speaking of of the strikes, we are going to return to the strike zone uh, with a topic this week because there actually is some new development there. But uh, anyway, but you've got day 100 of the strike coming up. That's August 9th uh, of the WGA strike. So that's certainly a landmark considering that the last writer's strike lasted for 99 days and negotiations started after like 20 some days. So. They're now talking about talking, but we'll get into that in a minute. So. I was going to say, stop spoiling our later topic in yeah. this podcast, Leslie. Whoops. All right. Leading off. Number one. It's the mini mailbag. As always, we remind you that we're going to be doing mini mailbags. They're not really all that mini, let's be perfectly honest. They're just mailbags at the top of every episode in lieu of headlines, at least for the time being. That means you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. And if you send us your address alongside your mailbag question, we'll get you out a limited edition TV's Top 5 sticker. And they are very cool. They look really good on your laptops. Promote the podcast and promote being a friend of the five etc etc uh but yes you guys have been sending us great questions we appreciate it uh keep them coming if we read your questions yay sometimes if we don't get to them we'll either get to them in upcoming weeks or you know just throw questions at us we like questions or it's a question that's a landmine that i'm not going anywhere near (laughs) there 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 are some of those some of some sometimes people ask us safe questions and sometimes people ask us dangerous questions and we don't want to get in trouble so we're reading the safe ones but that doesn't mean you shouldn't send us the dangerous ones because maybe next week we're gonna feel in a landmine kind of mood up first this is probably a safe question. Uh, Maurice Walker writes, now that Suits has become a hit for Netflix, which USA Blue Sky series would be a good fit on the service? Well, um, pretty much anything with a library, anything that lasted more than one season, more than two seasons, more than three seasons, which is your typical run for most streaming originals in this era. But what people are looking for and what has always been the backbone of Netflix and other streamers is library content like Suits. Grey's Anatomy remains a big driver. We know that uh, The Office used to be on Netflix, that Friends used to be. What do all of these shows have in common? Well, Friends and Suits, not much. But together, really, it's just they have a massive volume of episodes. Suits has over 100 episodes, for example. And this is the kind of content that streamers want. It's not the kind of content that streamers are making. The 
$200 million shows that run for two or three seasons with maybe 20 or 30 episodes, if you're lucky, by the time the shows conclude, that's not really library content the way that we are accustomed to thinking about it. This is basically a syndicated show that is having success because Netflix has a big platform. And when you open up the service, it's boom, it's right there. So many of my friends and family members are actually watching Suits for the first time right now. It's hilarious to me that this is a, a years old show. Yes, USA Network shows used to be incredibly successful when they ran as originals on linear, but now it's hitting in a completely different audience who missed it because they were busy watching, I don't know, Game of Thrones or whatever the hot show was when Suits was airing that was gobbling up all of the conversation. So in short, any USA show that has a volume of episodes a sizable volume of episodes. And it's funny because the Blue Sky format, there was always kind of the tangential joking about it because, of course, there was the famous uh, What is Burn Notice SNL sketch, which is one of my favorites. But sort of the idea of these shows where the concept was simultaneously easy enough that you could jump in and jump out at any given time, but also complicated enough that you couldn't really explain to anyone what this show actually was. And so something like Suits... I mean, it's a legal drama. And also we're in a moment where there aren't that many shows like that. So people are seeking it out. But the actual premise of Suits, if you go back to like the first episode, the stuff with Screen Actors Guild nominee uh, Patrick J. Adams and him not having a law degree and him taking the bar anyway, it was all the sort of complicated stuff that the show never dealt well with. And then it became significantly more appealing when people didn't need to worry about that. I, I feel like White Collar is a show that's in roughly the same vein as Suits, whereas I feel like the the lighter shows, whether it's Burn Notice or Royal Pains or Royal Family, whatever it was, the Mark Feuerstein show. Uh, Royal Pains. Yes, TV's Conrad Bloom to me, but that's all that matters. Yeah, the, the, it's sort of the shows that are a tiny bit more serialized that tend to be hooking people more at this point because sort of the, the binge process does involve more serialization. So while Burn Notice definitely was heavily serialized at certain points, it was perhaps a little more episodic, a little more procedural. So I, I kind of wonder if if shows like that are less appealing in a binging age, but might have been more appealing in kind of a syndication age where you could tune in, tune out, tune in, tune out. Look, it's on my TV after an NBA game, whatever. Whereas it feels as if Suits is kind of more of a let's get sucked into the world for X number of episodes. Yeah. And for the record, Royal Pains had 104 episodes over eight seasons, White Collar, six seasons and 81 episodes. So yeah, both would work fine. Lots and lots of inventory. <laughs> Our next question comes from Grayson, who has a question for you, Dan. Are there specific things you look for in a show in order to consider it good or great, setting aside some of the subjective things like a great script or good pacing or heart? Do you have a checklist of concrete things of every good show must have before you can start to appreciate the heart or is it all subjective? Well, of course, the simplest answer is yes, it's all subjective. I mean, that's the that's the easiest thing, sort of whenever I pan a show and someone on Twitter pops up and goes, ah, that's your just your opinion, man. Well, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> that is. That is absolutely the case. And either you tend to trust my opinion or you don't. And if you don't, that's entirely fine. And maybe you don't trust my opinion, but you just like my writing or whatever. Or maybe you hate my writing, but you really trust my opinion and you skim it for the opinions, whatever. Uh but no, the, the answer is is that there's no list of five things, to be sure, that, that I go through, because I think every show has a different aspiration. And I, I think that's kind of where I 
start off at all times is sort of, and I feel like it's kind of the the Roger Ebert model. Um, you know, like every like every critic of a certain generation, Roger Ebert is is one of the I don't know the people who who taught me how it was done. Uh, obviously, he and Pauline Kael, etc. But one of his ethos was that you reviewed things on the level that they were aspiring to. And so if you're watching a multicam comedy, is there cinematography in a multicam comedy? Of course there is. Is there editing in a multicam comedy? Of course there is. And you can absolutely distinguish between a multicam that is well shot and, you know, well edited versus one that's not. But it's not the thing where you want to lead and go, man, this is a great looking multi-cam comedy because when you're doing that it becomes a show like the ranch you know that the ranch on netflix is an example of a multi-cam comedy where the way that i used to lead my discussions of it was it's a surprisingly well shot comedy okay well (laughs) fine no one cares about that uh so with something like that you know i the checklist starts with writing and then performances and then kind of what is the story and the structure of it and all of that, how they're doing it. Whereas a show that is a, a drama that's filmed on location in, in exotic foreign country X or Y, you know, later in this podcast in critics corner, I'll talk about a, a show that is filmed in Australia and just a gorgeous looking show, whether it's a good show or not is something different. So that comes down to how things achieve their goals. Of course, sometimes a show can utterly achieve its goals, still be a crappy show, and probably the goal is kind of to acknowledge both of those two things. So something like my favorite whipping boy of the past year and a half or so, uh, Terminal List. Uh, Terminal List is a garbage show. It is it is a show that is made with no particular respect for its audience's intelligence, for anything technical associated with the craft of storytelling or filmmaking or anything. On the other hand, what its goals are is to be a crappy, pulpy, rah-rah revenge thriller. That is its goal. So simultaneously, a show like Terminal List can completely and totally achieve its goal and be a shitty television show. And that's entirely fine that it can be both of those things. Because if you meet it on its level and you don't care about anything associated with quality... You can enjoy it, and that's totally fine. You might scare me a, title, a tiny bit, but that's okay. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of where I go. The, the checklist always starts with, what is it that the show is trying to do? Is it trying to, first and foremost, tell a story? Is it trying to, first and foremost be thematic is it you know is it being political is it being ideological is it attempting to be trippy and surreal and whatever trying to approach a show on its level what it's trying to do and evaluating how well it does what it's trying to do is probably where my checklist always starts i could listen to you talk about your approach for this entire show dan that was fascinating well i no no one needs no one needs an entire show of it so Happy to do it for four or five minutes, though. (laughs) Up next, oh yeah, we're getting back to Suits. (laughs) Because apparently, it's a Suitsy week out there. In the initial outline I sent you, these two were together. But in order to make sure that we went back and forth with the questions for each of us, we split them up. Uh, Frequent emailer Muneeb Khan writes, Do you think any of these shows made specifically uh, by the streaming services will have a long afterlife in years to come? Suits is the latest already ended show from Linear Channel to rise to the top of the streaming charts out of nowhere. Whereas I've seen Daredevil uh, around the time No Way Home was released as the only streaming show to reappear on these viewing charts after having ended. Do you think these already ending streaming shows will have a harder time having a resurgence slash being newly discovered and appearing 
on these viewing charts? Yes. <laughs> good answer. I, mean, I, I, mean, I, could, I could listen to you answer that question for the entire <laughs> podcast, Leslie. I mean, the way that, that I've seen the industry work in the last five to 10 years is really library content, effectively things that have already ended that are just sitting on a service waiting to be rediscovered or rebinged or whatever. Those things tend to have an, another life if there's a reason for them to have another life, meaning a big name, you know, a young talent pops and suddenly people go back and watch their early work. That's rare. A show gets rebooted. That's common. Right, Will and Grace got rebooted, and then NBC Universal sold the library or whoever it was that produced the show. I can't remember off the top of my head. Whoever produced it sold the entire library as part of a huge package to pair it with the streaming repeats of the revival. Right, the same was true for Roseanne and all these other reboots. That helps generate new life. So if you're Orange is a New Black, for me, I love that show. I think I thought it was excellent. Obviously, that show was a launching pad for a lot of people who went on to do great things and obviously a lot of Emmy attention, not just for the show itself, but for the cast. Is anyone going back to watch Orange is the New Black? That was a seminal show for Netflix, as well as an awards player. And the answer is no. If that show gets rebooted, will people go back and watch that? Yes. The other thing that I think could start happening in the next couple of years, and I'll be curious to see how the strikes play out because I would wager some money that we'll start seeing some of these shows that were made exclusively for streaming be licensed to linear and, and do the reverse syndication instead of a show like Suits, which debuted on linear and was sold streaming rights to Netflix. Maybe you'll see a Netflix original be licensed to a linear network. Um, Ted Lasso is a great example of this. That's a show that's owned by Warner Brothers. The last contract negotiation for the cast and everyone else. Apple, obviously, you know, Warner Brothers had to pay the cast a lot more money because they all obviously were on this this huge hit, or so we're told. Because as we know on the show, streamers don't release traditional viewership data. But included in that was more a window that Apple carved out for more exclusivity. Meaning Warner Brothers wanted to take the show and to sell it to another platform, whether it was linear or their own streamer. And Apple said, now we're going to hold on to this for a little bit longer. So if there's a Ted Lasso spinoff and my spidey sense is tingling and the answer to that is probably a yes, it's just a question of which or how many, that will bring in new viewers to the original Ted Lasso. If it doesn't, if Ted Lasso just ends with its three seasons outside of an Emmy window and, and that show's final award season cycle, will people go back to that show or rediscover that show when they have more time? Yeah, sure. But it's not going to be have like a Suits-like phenomenon. I wonder how much of it has to do with simply just the recency, you know, that that maybe and not enough time has passed for people to feel like now is the time for a rewatch. And it, and it's very clearly not just that, because something like Girls, which it felt like half of uh, Twitter was rewatching this spring, without any obvious prompting for why it was that half of Twitter decided to rediscover Girls this spring, other than it being a good show. But like you mentioned, the 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 idea of people catching up on shows because person X or person Y was in it, and it, I don't feel like it happens all that often. Yeah, that's why I said it was rare. Yeah, yeah, and, and I so think like, people and, and like I would love to be able to send people to to Max to go back and watch Generation because so many of the cast members from that <laughs> show popped, but they they removed it. I mean, now you can go watch it on I can't remember which free ad supported platform it's on, but 
and I and I wonder how much that has to do with it. Like specifically the because you you know you talked in the first answer about the importance of library, and so you know having fifty or sixty episodes or seventy or a hundred or whatever to watch, and so even with generations, even if it were easily available on Max, it would still only be however many the episodes were. Yeah, it was whatever, like 20 episodes, yeah, split over like season 1A, season 1B or whatever. It was. And I don't know if, if to people that feels like a, like a binge, like if, if people were like, that just doesn't seem like enough because for whatever reason, the first thing that came to mind when you, when you said that about, you know, young talent, whatever, let's go back and revisit it, is the idea that it would be, it would have made me very happy if in the past year and a half when everyone was celebrating the awesomeness of Sydney Sweeney, if people had been like, oh, look, she appears to have been in a show called Everything Sucks on Netflix. Yes. Let's go watch that, which I do know is one of your favorites. We just, <laughs> we, I just rewatched that because my wife watched it for the first time, which is embarrassing to say that she didn't watch it this entire time that I've been, you know, standing from the rooftop telling people to watch it for years. And but anyway, she finally got to it. And she's like, wow, Sydney Sweeney's good. I'm like, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still- also Peyton Kennedy is good. Everyone in that show is good. And it was a really good show, and it was a show that Netflix – one of those early shows in the, in the oh, my God, Netflix can cancel shows as opposed to our now current, yeah, Netflix cancels everything kind of mode, uh, where that was a show that because of its early cancellation, which was, you know, just so short-sighted and, and dumb, there's, there's just no they, – they should have realized they had stars in that show, and they clearly did not. Yeah, but al- it's, allegedly, it's, the completion rate for that was pretty low, but I'd be <sighs> curious to see what the numbers are on it are, are now. Guess if what? More people found it, but again, just you never finding will. a little tiny darling, you know, a critical darling, a diamond in the in the rough. It's like there's only so much value that that rebinging that is going to have. And, and it's only ten episodes. So in terms of just how much how much of your life you could spend rewatching or watching everything sucks. Well, I mean, sure, you could take a Sunday afternoon <laughs> and watch it, but it isn't the same as I'm going to spend the next uh, six months watching an episode of Suits per night. There, there just isn't the inventory for it to feel like a full-on immersion. And I wonder how much the value of something like this is a full-on immersion. Of course, though, one could absolutely full-on immerse themselves in Orange is the New Black if one wanted to. At some point, I feel as if the internet is going to get far enough away from the running window of Orange is the New Black and go back and watch it. And suddenly all of the feelings that people had about kind of later seasons not being as good and stuff, people will people will discover that the later seasons were actually in some cases great, in some cases messy, but full of very good things, et cetera. So I, I wonder if it's just a, with some of the shows, if it's just a matter of time, but who knows? Yeah, and that's if they they survive whatever purge is coming, because at some point there has to be a bigger one coming in Netflix. God, but if when when Netflix starts removing shows like Orange Is the New Black, that would that would not. I mean, they don't own that. That's a Lionsgate show. Yeah, so it's it's, really you know, do they are enough people watching on Netflix to justify them paying a a licensing fee to Lionsgate to keep it on their platform? That's ultimately the question, and if they own it. It's, I mean, I guess it faces an easier battle, but still, you're still paying to keep it. Oh, it's pure. I mean, it's, you know. it's pure optics. It's it, it's just yeah. the optics of whether of of Netflix saying, well, we're just going to let Orange is the New Black wander off somewhere else. One of our one of our two or three early signature shows will just be like, whatever, go, go have fun elsewhere. Orange is the New Black. That would that to me would be very very sad. But whatever. 
anyway, thank you guys so much for this week's questions. Uh, we're going to do this again next week, provided there isn't a huge explosion of news, which could always happen. But anyway, once again, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Number two. Up second, we're going back into the strike zone. And for the first time in a little while, there's actually a little bit of news and it's a little bit hopeful, but it's also a whole lot uncertain. So, Leslie, how much do you want to commit to being hopeful about where we're heading in the strike zone as we near the end of this week? I'm going to call it a glimmer of hope. So as we record this, it's Thursday afternoon here. We know that the Writers Guild and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents the studios and streamers, they are taking their first step toward re-engaging in a new round of contract negotiations after the WGA informed members that the AMPTP had reached out to schedule a meeting for Friday, August 4th. So to be clear, this is not both sides going back to the negotiating table. This is talking about talking about restarting talks. But it is a step in the right direction. And, you know, I talked to a lot of writers this week, you know, once uh, the WGA put out that memo. And it's basically everyone expressing hope, but not they're not putting down their picket signs. They're not kicking their shoes off and saying, okay, we're here we go. So there's a great tweet uh, by David H. Steinberg, who uh, posted this week. He said, for reference, formal talks resumed in 2007 after 21 days of striking. At the time that he posted this, they were on day 92, and this was only the idea of formal talks being discussed. And as he said, it is a step in the right direction. And that's true. So sources say that this was the result of a lot of back-channeling in the days that led up to the WGA's announcement on Tuesday. Sources say that those included talks with top executives, agents. There's a rumor that business affairs executives were also involved. Uh, There's a report in the New York Times that said that there were a handful of showrunners that appealed to executives to meet with members of the WGA to really get a a jumpstart and see if you can even get both sides to sit down in the same room again. So either way, it is, like I said, a step in the right direction. And as for the question of why the WGA is now meeting with the AMPTP instead of it being the actors groups and the performers union SAG-AFTRA. Well, studios need scripts. We've talked on the show and we're going to get to that in, in our next segment. But right now we've seen some, as we talked about on last week's podcast, we've seen a, a, at least two shows so far have already pushed back their premiere date from August to November. People are running out of content. Obviously, the idea if you're a studio and you've got a broadcast network or if you're a studio who produces a show for broadcast, the threat of losing the fall season and having a fewer episodes overall is a big hit financially. Not only if you're you know, a network, are you going to lose the ad revenue? But if you're a studio, you lose the licensing fees per episodes. And then it's the, the down the line stuff, right? If you're ABC and you already have the deal in place to sell Grey's Anatomy episodes to Netflix after the season ends, and they're paying a per episode fee. And instead of your average of, I don't know how many episodes Grey's does, if it's, let's just say 20 per season, but this season is only going to be 15, there is a financial impact there too. So again, you got to have scripts for writers to go in and, and perform. So that's what's happening in the strike zone this week. 
And at the same time, you have Warner Brothers folks talking about the amount of cash that they saved as a result of the strike, which feels a little bit like a topic from last week's podcast. So, hey, the things we talked about on our podcast actually happen. Dan, how's how's your crystal ball feeling? I I, I I just polished mine. I have a television, not a crystal ball. I do I do not foresee the future. I will allow you to do that. Anyway, though, it's better to have it's better to have a little bit of optimism than a little bit of pessimism. And heaven knows we've had plenty of pessimism in <laughs> in recent weeks slash months. So let's hope that these conversations about having conversations lead eventually to actual conversations. Yeah. I mean, the idea of, of what Steinberg is is getting at in his tweet that talks resumed as in negotiations resumed after 21 days of a strike that lasted for 99 days. So that means that they spent, what, 70 days negotiating? Well, we're approaching day 100 of the strike, and now we're only talking about perhaps talking again. So I guess the next story to look to be on the lookout for is what comes out of this meeting on Friday if both sides set a return date to go to the negotiating table. And if they do, how long will those negotiations last? Because this feels a lot farther apart than we were in 2007 when, of course, everyone was talking about quote unquote new media, which we know now streaming, which we know now also completely upended our entire industry. So Lots to do, lots to negotiate here. Number three. Up third this week, you mentioned at the top of the show, it's August, so new month, lots of TV coming this month. So it's time to talk about the August premieres, Dan. And as I hinted in the last one, we've already seen two shows move off their premiere dates, both of which were scheduled for August. That's Max's Rap Shit and the FX on Hulu show, A Murder at the End of the World. Both were scheduled for August. Both have been pushed back now to November. Other August premieres, you've got Reservation Dogs, the final season of the FX show on Hulu, Big Brother on CBS, the summer staple, Physical, the third and final season on Apple. One of my favorites, Heartstopper, is back for season two on Netflix. Amazon has the, the Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. The Lakers show Winning Time is back on HBO with its second season. Emmy Darling Only Murders in the Building is back for season three. Painkiller makes its debut on Netflix. You've got, I believe it's the final season of Billions on Showtime. It, you know, will, will that set up trillions and billions and gazillions and whatever all those other dumb spinoffs are called? Who knows? Uh, Solar Opposites is back without Justin Roiland. Craig Robinson is back to killing it on season two on Peacock. You've got the new Star Wars show Ashoka on Disney+. And then you've got season two of Invasion on Apple TV and so much other stuff. Wheel of Time season two on Amazon. I mean, first of all, I'm surprised Wheel of Time is coming back. But when a show is that expensive, I guess you got to try to amortize some of the costs and green light a second season and hope someone finds it. But anyway, I digress. Dan, it feels pretty crowded. It is extremely crowded. And a show like Wheel of Time is is just a, a funny thing because, I, I you know, I'm going to go and say it did not make an imprint in the culture at large. But I don't think they made that show for the culture at large. I think they made that show for a passionate fan base of of readers of very, very big, very, very involved books who would have been very, very upset if the show had ended after one season. Plus, as you say, amortizing the cost and all of that. So like with, with the show like Wheel of Time, 
we we heard we've heard so much. You can go back and read our colleague Kim Masters' great Amazon story talking about completion rates on a bunch of Amazon shows. But one of the shows whose completion rate statistics she didn't mention in that story is Wheel of Time, and it, it would not surprise me if the audience for that was very very small, but absolutely completed the show. In which case, I guess it has value. I you know who knows. Um, I will not be returning to Wheel of Time personally, but that's just me. If it makes you happy. Huzzah, I say. Yeah, it, it's interesting to see the shows begin to move out of August. You, you mentioned Rap Shit. You mentioned A Murder at the End of the World, which is the Brit Marling show that had a previous name. And yeah, so I can, I can only barely keep up with it, but it has a very good cast, Clive Owen, a few other really, really big names. So, well, I guess, probably, I mean, Rap Shit has a big audience and and won some awards last year also. So it is, it's interesting to see those shows moving because as I mentioned last week, there really was a pointless logjam of new shows that premiered last week, this week, week before. I feel like several of these shows probably should have moved to different locations, but that's how it goes. It it's definitely a sparse month, but that doesn't mean that it is a a month without things. But if you compare it to last August, when we had the big exciting showdown between Lord of the Rings, whatever it was called, and House of the Dragon, uh, you know, new Marvel show last year, I believe we were setting things up for Andor to premiere. There, there were a lot of huge shows. This month, there definitely are not those. So like the biggest of the new shows is almost unquestionably Ahsoka, the new Star Wars show. And so that's bound to get some attention. And, and I definitely know that there are people excited for it, whether it's comparable to if there were a new season of The Mandalorian coming out, I'm not really sure. We'll We'll see how that goes. And then there are a lot of returning shows of variable interests. So you mentioned no one talking about Wheel of Time. Uh, I'm amused to see a second season of Invasion coming to Apple TV+. And I'm vaguely curious about Invasion because everything I wrote about Invasion in the first season was, holy crap, this is a show where the entire first season is completely and totally exposition. How on earth can we have a show called Invasion where they're barely having any invasion at all? Maybe the second season is invasion heavy. I'm actually kind of curious. Um, Remember when, that reminds me of when AMC marketed the first season of The Killing as Who Killed... Uh, Rose Larson or Rosie Larson, and then didn't answer that question. (laughs) (sighs) You know, and and that that was one where the promise kind of pissed people off. I don't know. I think people who weren't into Invasion were mostly annoyed just because of how little happened in it. That was what annoyed me. Is also you've been talking about Invasion now for the last two minutes. I, I mentioned it in the intro. I have no recollection of who's in this show. God, I'm trying to think of who the stars ended up being because it it was kind of amusing because a number of the people who were the biggest names, and I no longer remember who they are because very little of that show has stuck with me. A number of those people were killed off in the first episode. (laughs) And so it it became a lot of relative unknowns. Uh, The show's the interesting part of the show's conceit was the international level of it. And so there were, there were lots of scenes in Japan. There were various scenes in the middle East, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Yeah. I'm, you know, look, if I have time and the reality is some of these weeks are slow, so maybe I will have time. You know, maybe I'll check out the second season of it, it is interesting. The number of Apple TV plus shows that are returning for second seasons that aren't the shows 
from Apple TV that I want second seasons of. Like, great, I'm happy to have a second season of Invasion and Foundation and whatever for the people who like those shows, but where is my second season of Pachinko? Where is my second season of Severance? Uh, so, I mean, the answer the answer primarily is, guess what? There was a strike. There is a strike. So we'll see. <laughs> and guess what? Some of those shows are not going to be on an annual basis. Like oh, I, you know, we know you can go back and listen to our interview with Sue Hugh, the showrunner of Pachinko from episode 160 in March uh, 2022. But this is not a show that's going to be on an annual basis because as Sue said back at the time, the production on this is so sweeping like it so much goes into this. I think, what did they say? She, they filmed on how many continents? They filmed on multiple continents, though ultimately fewer than they wanted to. They had to make sort of accommodations for price and practical realities of shooting completely on location, et cetera. But yeah. Plus it's, the pandemic impact. Yeah. yeah but again, these are, that's a sweeping show that's not going to be an annual thing. And, and I, I, you know, I think Severance had some creative issues on season two, plus the strikes. Yeah, there there are causes for everything, but yeah. So you you go through the this list, and and so there's a lot of things that if you have specialized interest will interest you. So I know I do know a couple anime fans who are very excited for One Piece on Netflix. Uh, I watched the trailer; it looks horrible, but that doesn't mean that it might not be. So who knows? Uh, the Harlan Coben mystery adaptation. Factory is just a, an impressive thing. And those shows are really huge. All of the Harlan Coben adaptations previously had been on Netflix. So this is interesting that this one is on Amazon. But I, I know that there have been large audiences for those. Uh, like, what else is there? If you really, really want to get yelled at online by uh, scary people, I think Depp versus Herd. Oh, that's a great chance. If you want to live tweet about that, you would probably get some fun people coming out of the woodwork. Uh <laughs> But the, and then there's sort of the interesting curios that I'm I'm genuinely concerned about, like not concerned, curious about, like Telemarketers, which is a documentary, and the creative team on that one includes the Softy Brothers and Danny McBride. So you know, count me count me as interested. There's uh the latest kind of revisionist take on the King Arthur legend, the Winter King on MGM Plus, uh, lots and lots of documentary series. Uh, there's a spinoff from Adventure Time. Again, not so much my thing, but I know it is many, many people's things, etc. So, and and then there are the shows that are kind of, you, you mentioned Billions. Well, it's Damian Lewis Returns to Billions. So that's kind of the hook of that. That's, it's got a hook. Uh, Solar Opposites coming back on Hulu. It's the we cast Justin Roiland uh, with Dan Stevens. So that's the hook of that. Th there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that could be interesting, but if you just compare the simple volume, if you just look at how long the list of premieres is versus how last month's premiere list was, which was very, very long, and versus what May's premiere list was, which was crazy, it is definitely a reduced premiere list. And so I suspect that is going to be an ongoing trend for very, very logical reasons. Number four. Up next, we are thrilled to welcome back Brad Schwartz, the former Pop TV president who was tapped in November to serve as president of the CW under its new ownership, Station Group Nexstar. Schwartz, who famously brought Emmy darling Schitt's Creek to the U.S. on Pop, has reshaped the network from the homegrown scripted originals like Riverdale and The Flash with only All-American and its spinoff, Walker, 
and Superman and Lois remaining from the shows he inherited from former CW CEO Mark Pedowitz. In their place, Schwartz has pushed the CW into sports with deals for Live Golf, NASCAR, and Inside the NFL, a slate of unscripted programming including F-Boy Island and its spinoff, as well as a roster of imported originals as he hopes to replicate the success of Schitt's Creek, which, despite its first airing in the U.S. on Pop, didn't break out until the show hit Netflix. Thanks so much for joining us, Brad. And if, by the way, this is Brad's second time on TV's Top 5. He previously joined us in episode 34 from August 16th, 2019. 34. That's awesome. And we, we did that one in person. We were across a desk from each other. That was great. We were yeah. indeed at some press tour hotel location back when that was a thing that happened in person as well. So my fondest, hope- my fondest memory of that was I remember, I believe you asked me a question about Schitt's Creek and it being on you know Netflix and that's where people found it. And I believe I called Netflix a library. And I, <laughs> <laughs> it was like I, afterwards, I, I was like, what did I say? <laughs> Feel free to feel free to do anything similar that you want to do this time. Any any trouble, hot water you would get, want to get yourself in, thumbs up. Yeah, you're you're one of the few executives that's actually you know at least the net on the network and studio side that are actually talking right now. So, but we can get to that in a minute. But let's let's start with the CW. Um, we talked a little bit at the end of last year after you got the job when you described your approach to the CW as being scrappy. Since then, we've seen a steady flow of acquired, scripted, and reality shows, as well as some sports deals. Was this always your plan for the CW, or how much of your original plan was derailed because of the strikes? Boy, it's a great question. When I got the job and I met with the the people at Nexstar, they are the biggest broadcasters in the country, and they know broadcasting. And 40% of the CW footprint are, are Nexstar stations. And they realize what works for their stations, what doesn't work for their stations. They have ABC stations and CBS and Fox and NBC stations as well. And, you know, one of the clear mandates was we need to act like broadcasters and we need to get bigger and we need to get broader and we need to work. You know, we need to find things that uh, that that attract, you know, a broader audience and a more linear audience. And at the same time, find shows that can serve a completely unduplicated audience in in, in a streaming environment. And in the old CW shows were certainly, you know, acted a little bit more like a like a, a very young adult, you know, cable network. And so I knew the strategy was going to be how do we get bigger and broader. Um, and I also realized that in the fourth quarter, six months from now, from when I got the job, there was going to be color bars on the network if we didn't, you know, start getting stuff going. And so. I didn't even really have the strike in mind. I was really focused on trying to fill 14 hours a week, you know, uh, two hours a night, seven nights a week of, uh, of primetime programming in a world where a lot of the old CW shows were ending and we needed to fill up a schedule. And so phase one of that strategy was to go find really great stuff that we could get on the air as quickly as possible. Um, and that meant getting involved into some unscripted that can be made a little faster uh, find some really great acquisitions from uh, from around the world, um, and uh, and just start assembling a schedule. So the strike, you know, didn't really come into play when we were first strategizing how to get bigger and broader and 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 start in fall of of twenty three. But then, as the strike happened, it turns out that our fall schedule will have more original scripted content on it than any other broadcaster. <laughs> I mean, but to be fair, NBC actually has unaired 
new original U.S. produced scripted series and the stuff that you're talking about is acquired content that has aired elsewhere. Yes, but never here, right? So, I mean, it's it's original it's original to here. And by the way, one of those NBC shows is Transplant, which is from Canada. So, um, yes, original to here and, uh, and, and has never been seen before. So, I mean, when I think about the CW and scripted originals, I always think of the main, the big studios who have supplied content to the CW. Obviously, the former majority owners, CBS Studios and Warner Brothers TV, whom the CW is still in business with. Obviously, CBS does Walker. WB has has Superman and both uh, Superman and Lois and both the All American shows. But I'll admit that my expectation for the CW under Nexstar and, and with you at the helm was that we would be seeing more studio backed scripted originals. But what we've seen so far is that the content has already aired elsewhere. Can you explain why these big studio shows? don't make sense for the CW anymore? Yeah. Um, look, we we haven't announced, you know, a lot of this stuff, but we have a lot of original homegrown scripted content coming. Uh, some things are in production right now, and uh, I can't wait to tell you, you know, about that. It's kind of the phase two, you know, after we get after we get through this fall. But uh, working with the large, working with the big studios at the the price points that we need to operate at, it's hard to get all of the rights that you need, right? They'll give you your linear rights. They'll give you like a rolling five on digital, a terrible experience so that they can episodes, monetize, yeah. so they can monetize those shows into streaming and, and and other platforms. And we need to be a place that you know can't just be a place that monetizes with advertising one time a week in prime time. We need to be able to monetize our content in more places. And the fact that you know we can't. That when the new season of Superman and Lois is coming, uh, season four of Superman and Lois is coming, and you don't have seasons one, two, and three on your streaming platform, it's just a ridiculous experience that nobody else nobody else operates that way. If you if you go see the new season of Virgin River on Netflix, the prior four seasons are all there, right? It's not just the new season, and uh, and those were rights that that the CW never had, and so the CW for many years operated almost like a movie theater where CBS and Warner Brothers would make the movies and they put them in the movie theaters for, for 13 weeks and the movie theater would sell popcorn and then they would monetize that content by selling it to streamers and selling it around the world and it would leave the movie theater. And, uh, and we just can't operate that way anymore. And so to find ways of making ambitious, great content, whether that's scripted or unscripted, doing it at a price point where we can make those shows profitable and making sure we have all of the rights so that we can monetize the content um, in more places, that's the goal. Now, if we can do that with a major studio, we'll do it with a major studio. If it's a co-production with an international partner, we'll do it that way. Um, But we, A, have to find content we love. That's first and foremost. You don't do anything because it's cheap. You do it because you like it. And then you got to find partners to to that help you monet, that help you afford it. I'll say a lot of the shows on the CW are as expensive to make as any other show in broadcast. But we've done deals for those shows that allow it to be profitable for us. At the same time, going back to that movie theater analogy, the the various deals were not wholly one-sided like the CW shows benefited rather tremendously in terms of exposure and sometimes in terms of audience from the Netflix deal and you obviously talking about your background with uh with Schitt's Creek again you know the possible 
ripple that that can have when you have that platform. What are you guys planning on doing when you don't have that platform anymore? And and are we maybe overstating what the benefits were to the CW of having those Netflix relationships for all of those shows? I think the, the difference is, is those will now be our relationships. So if we have a show um, that... We have a Sullivan's Crossing show, and it does really well. And we think that show can benefit from an exposure on Netflix in a second window. And if Netflix wants that show, and why wouldn't they? Because Virgin River is a big hit, and this is from the same writer and the same executive producer. Um, that would be our relationship to have with Netflix, and that would be revenue that comes to us you know, from Netflix. Much like with Schitt's Creek, it's a very similar pop TV licensed Schitt's Creek to Netflix. Pop TV, you know which then became Paramount, licensed um, the, the 80 episodes of Schitt's Creek to Hulu in a second window. Those were all ways for Pop TV to make incremental money beyond just the advertising revenue. So, um, so that's why having these rights to monetize and make money so that you can actually afford these shows, because advertising alone won't just cover it. So what about, so sticking with the Sullivan's Crossing analogy, I mean, that's not a show that it, that is produced by Nexstar, that that's produced by whoever originally made it in whatever yep. territory it originated in. Yep. How do you have those rights? How are you benefiting from that, considering that Nexstar and the CW had no involvement in the, the actual making of the show, whereas right. a show like, like uh, Superman and Lois, Warner Brothers directly benefited because they produced the show that was licensed to that's the CW, right. which was one hand licensing to the other in a way. That's right. So it's... Um... It's always very complicated, but, uh, and that show, by the way, was a competitive situation. There were a lot of people that wanted that show. We negotiated a deal where we got all rights domestically and where we become co-producers and creatively involved in the future seasons. And so a, we are now co-producers of that show. There's a, a second season that'll be, that'll, that has been greenlit and announced and we're really excited about it and we're creatively involved in that. Um, and when the first season hits, we have rights to, you know, us and using Fremantle's help have rights to sub-distribute that show. Should it be successful, we have another way to to monetize that content. So that's the way that deal comes together. And so for all intents and purposes, there's no difference to us, you know, having started that show from scratch ourselves or having acquired it um, in, in the first season. Uh, the rights we have allow us to monetize it in the same way. So then my, I guess my question becomes, if, if it costs the same amount of money, that why not greenlight more of the shows that were already proving successful on the CW for the same money that was bringing in a dedicated audience? Whereas some of the, the acquired shows that you've already put on this summer, you've already pulled most three of them, I think. Yeah. I, I, and then again, that comes down to uh, you know the, the, what we were paying for these shows um, they were not profitable for us. We were paying more for those shows than, than, than some of the new deals that we're working on. And not only just paying more for those shows, paying more for those shows and not having the rights to monetize them in other places. And so it's really not that we're spending much, more, much less for a Sullivan's Crossing versus a Superman and Lois. We just happen to have more rights we can have all the episodes on our streaming platform. When season two comes, we'll have all the episodes from season one and season two on our streaming platform. In success, we'll be able to sub-license that to other places. We'll be able to launch CW fast channels that go on Tubi and, and Pluto and other places that have CW content on them. We'll actually be able to operate like a 
like a business that wants to put CW content under a CW branded flag in many different places. And we never had those rights with the, you know, we couldn't start a CW fast channel and put Superman and Lois on it. So what's your plan going forward? Is it fair to expect that the CW will not be buying originals from the likes of, of Warner's or CBS and the other big studios like Sony and Disney and universal? No, I mean, let's, we have three shows from Warner um, that, uh, that are returning one from CBS. Uh, Dennis Miller met, had lunch with George cheeks last week. And we're like, how can we figure out how to do, you know, stuff together? Um, and, uh, I think everybody has an appetite to try and find ways to work together. We're actually, you know, working with NBC right now through, you know, a negotiation on, on a series. And it's just, it's, it's tricky because everyone has a way of doing things and historically has a way of doing things, especially in the broadcast world. And we are trying to think a little differently when you say we'd like to pay this and we want these rights, people look at you weird. <laughs> They're like, you want to pay what for how, you know? Um, but for us, it's just really important. And if we can't get the rights and if, and, and we're not going to go, you know, uh, a four, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to win any bidding wars um, anytime soon. But when we find a piece of content that we really like, then we have to figure out how to afford it and to make sure we get the rights we need. And those are difficult conversations. And sometimes you can't get there. And, uh, and sometimes you can um, but no, we would love to work with CBS. We would love to. Uh, every conversation I have with Brett Paul is about how can we find a show that is uh, that is a model that works for you. And maybe that means it's not a six million dollar an episode show. Maybe it's a and look, CW shows make money internationally because they're on broadcast. There's still a halo to being on broadcast, to being on this incredible platform that makes these shows more valuable internationally. Companies like CBS and Warner know the value of CW shows and how much they make internationally. So maybe if you find a show that's a little bit of a lower budget show, but still maybe it's more character driven, it's still ambitious, it's still something you're really excited about between international and us, um, is there a way to, to put it together? So it, you just have to be a little entrepreneurial. Sometimes I call that scrappy, but uh, you just have to think a little differently. Um, and that's kind of always where... I've uh, I've seen some victories in my career and just kind of thinking a little differently, being a little contrarian, doing things a little different, finding hidden gems in places nobody else is looking. Yeah. You know, I wanted to go back and touch on the four shows that you are bringing back. Mm-hmm. Um, two of them, at least two of them, have had their series regulars slash as part of larger budget cuts mm-hmm. that helped afford the shows to return, the, those being All-American Homecoming as well as Superman and Lois. How do those four shows factor into the CW's future beyond the upcoming 23-24 broadcast season, assuming that there is, in fact, a broadcast season in which those four shows air? Because obviously the strikes and everything else that's going on. Yeah, correct. Uh, Look, it's pretty obvious that those would be the four to come back. Those are all million viewer shows. Those are all shows that, uh, that do well both in linear and in digital. Um, we were able to work with our studio partners in both of those occasions to make it work and to, to make sure that show is profitable for us, profitable for them, profitable for everybody. Um, sometimes when you, when you readdress something like that, you have to make some tough decisions. And those were, you know, the creators and the producers had to make some tough decisions. Obviously the press release is some characters, you know, not being, you know, um, 
you know, full anymore and being, you know, being demoted, this and that. A lot of those characters will be back. They'll just be back in a few episodes instead of all the episodes. You know, I think everyone still loves being a part of all of those shows. But these are the creative decisions that have to be made um, when you want to, you know, keep a show going and do it at a, in a way where it's profitable for everyone. So they're tough decisions. They suck. But um, but I don't think any of those shows aren't going to be as ambitious or awesome as they've always been. Um, it just takes the producers, amazing producers, really high quality, successful producers, figuring out a way of, of still developing um, hit shows. And uh, and look, we've gotten those shows to a to a, a a place where why couldn't they continue? If they're profitable, why wouldn't they keep going? Um, those will be conversations we have with the producers to see the appetite to keep going. But um, if they're profitable and successful and some of our highest rated shows, why wouldn't they? No, I, I want to actually take a kind of a step back and, and go to kind of the 30,000 foot view question here, because obviously, of course, the the CW name, it comes specifically from the partnership with CBS television and with Warner Brothers. That partnership has now, it's now 25% stake. It's 12.5% each. But But I'm curious, have there been conversations about a new name for the network? And if there haven't been, what would you tell people at this point that the CW stands for either literally or figuratively if it isn't what it was before? Right. Um, there have been no conversations about changing the name. Um, we've had conversations about how can we take the CW and make it more elastic? How can we, you know, we're going to have sports on the air for the first time ever. Like we had zero hours of sports last year. We're going to have 300 hours of sports this year. And in 2025, we're going to have 450 hours of sports with live sports, 48 weekends a year. I mean, that is a drastic change in a very small amount of time. And you need to put a CW logo on that stuff that makes it feel like we're a home for sports. Um, Adult dramas, not that CW hasn't done adult dramas before, but whether it's comedies or dramas or the young adult stuff that we still have or sports, I think we need to make the CW feel a little more elastic and feel like a brand that can that can handle all of those different flavors of content. And so we've been really focused on that. And maybe we redesign the network a little bit. Maybe we make the logo um, and uh, and the fonts and the colors feel like it can you know really wrap up this exciting new evolution of the brand, but there's been no conversation at all about changing the name. Changing, you know, I've gone through six rebrands in, in my career, so I kind of know the recipe for it, um, but they're very difficult, you know, and especially if you take something like a, a, a style network and go to Esquire or when Discovery Health changed to Oprah Winfrey Network, it's really difficult unless you have a ton of money and a ton of patience to say, to completely shun an audience that was there and try and start again with a new name and a whole new thing. Um, evolutions are a little, I mean, difficult as well, but a little easier to pull off. So we're not going to change the name. We're just going to make the name feel like something different. And we're going through that process right now. But as we're all sort of going through on social media, as the example, the transition from uh from Twitter to whatever that guy wants to call Twitter these yeah. days. Um, how, how do you kind of reassure the people who have to some degree grown up with the CW as a thing that this is not about to become some very large bait and switch wherein basically they bought a platform and now they're going to decimate absolutely everything on it. Yeah. It, it, it's going to be different. 
It is certainly going to be different. I think you don't want to shun an audience you've spent 20 years cultivating, um, hence why you renew Superman and Lois and All-American and Homecoming and, and Walker. Um, and then you've seen we've announced like that, that we're going to produce a new version of Librarians, which I'm very excited about, which I do think will will fit into into that audience. We have a couple of other shows that square, fall squarely into the YA space that I, I can't mention right now, but that we're really excited about. It's certainly going to still be a pillar of, of the network. It just won't be the only pillar. It'll be like one of five. And uh, look, I've, I've still only been here six months, right? We're still kind of figuring figuring out where we're going, and uh, and to be able to speak about what does the CW stand for, and and, and figure out what our brand mission is. Um, um, but in the meantime, it's about evolving the CW brand to just be a little more elastic, so that it can it can feel like a home for different for sports and drama and comedy, et cetera. But along those lines, I feel like there's always been a, a perception that in its former incarnation, the CW had a relatively progressive bent to its programming. And the yeah. new ownership group has a reputation and a perception that it is a more conservative leaning organization. Is it fair to expect that there will be a visible or notable shift in, if not overall programming ideology, the bent of the network. No, no, not at all. What they, what, what, what Nexstar is great at is broadcasting, right? They are a gold standard company. They know broadcasting and, uh, and we want to do things that help all of our local stations. Um, but I challenge the fact that I, I would say that our, our programming choices, the, the idea of, of any kind of conservative nature being across our programming is just not anything that, that I'm very interested in. Uh, I want to keep making bold choices, keep investing in young talent. When I think of my resume and the things that I'm most proud of, I'm most proud of doing Martin Garrow's first show. I'm proud of doing Dan Levy's first show. I'm proud of doing Prentice Penny's first show, who, by the way, that was an incredible TV top five when you had the whole Happy Endings crew on. Um, uh, Proud of doing Billy Eichner's first show. And by the way, that plays into the scrappy strategy of if you want to find ways of putting really ambitious and wonderful content on the air and do it at a lower price point, then you find the next Shonda Rhimes, right? You find the next Prentice Penny. You find the, guy, the, the person who has a passion project and it's their first project and they will crawl across hot coals to make it amazing. And, uh, and then they go on and they become Prentice Penny and Martin Garrow and Dan Levy, et cetera. So that idea of trying to find ambitious new voices is something I've always love to do. And it's also, and something I want to continue to do and it fits our business model. So, so what's the pitch to get these fresh new voices into CW? Because that's honestly, I mean, look at the, the, the network and, and some of the people who have graduated from it or who have, who yeah. have grown up on it and cut their teeth, you know, Kevin Williamson, Julie Pleck, Greg Berlanti. I mean, the list is massive. I mean, this was a place where up and comers really, found their way and became, as you said, the next Shonda. So how, where are you finding those people now and those voices now, if it's not in the traditional studio system? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's meeting with a lot of 
it's meeting with a lot of agents. It's meeting with a lot of people that represent really smart new voices. We have a show that uh, that we are currently negotiating on and, and, and budgeting right now that is an, an incredibly fresh voice that nobody's ever heard of that gives me a little tingle in my gut. And hopefully we can close that deal and you all will love it. And it'll be hopefully a new fresh voice being put into the world. Um, we actually have two of those. Um, and yeah, you have to find that from from young agents and people that represent up and coming writers that have something special and uh, something special that we, that doesn't involve dragons, you know, where we can actually afford uh, to do it. And, uh, and that always really excites me. Now it's not going to be everything we do, but it'll certainly, we have at least two of those that, that are coming. And, uh, and I'd love to be a place that continues to do that for sure. 100%. So you, you mentioned, um, you know, at the top of the interview that you still have shows that are that are in production right now. Lots of homegrown original scripted that's coming, including stuff that's in production right now. So how would you just describe the what's currently in production? Because a lot of the stuff that anything that's AMPTP backed is yep. shut down. Right. Writers that are part of the guild not mm-hmm. working. Actors, obviously the same. Mm-hmm. So. Many of them are co-productions. Many of them are being shot in international locations. Um, remember, we are not a struck company. And, uh, and a lot of these are, uh, you know, like the show we've announced, Joan, right? Joan with Sophie Turner. That is a co-production between us and ITV that was built together from scratch. Um, that, uh, that show's just about to finish wrapping. Um, and, uh, and that, that's going to be awards bait, that show. It is just, we've seen the dailies look amazing. Sophie Turner is phenomenal and it's, uh, I'm really, really excited about that one. And that one's just now, now coming to an end. That'll be a high end, big budget scripted series with a huge star that should hit Q1 or Q2 for us. That's one of about five examples that are kind of happening around the world right now. So social media had a lot of fun with your declaration that the chosen was based on uh, <laughs> you're referred to the your biggest re- IP of all time. Uh, okay. So we know you, we've had you on the podcast before. We know you were joking there. What was your reaction to a lot of people who seemed to be under the impression that that was a very earnest statement that you were making? <laughs> I've, I loved seeing the reaction to that statement. First of all, it's true. um you know the bible has sold five billion copies um uh harry potter has sold 500 million copies it's not even close um it is uh it is whether you want to call it ip or not i was certainly being cheeky it's the biggest ip of all time and by the way it's not anything hollywood has hasn't done before whether it's the ten commandments or or um what's the name aronofsky doing uh, noah with you know etc cetera, etc cetera. um but that was a show that i knew very underground and very secret was just an, a massive hit show that mainstream media hadn't caught up to but you also Um, helped you were involved in the create it was it the creation or the marketing like this was something that you were involved with long before you were in the cw job correct right so prior to me getting the the cw job i was the 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 founding ceo of a business that was really uh of of a media company that was really exploring things in in the faith space and uh, and one of the co-founders of that platform is Dallas Jenkins, who created The Chosen. And so I had like a front row seat to watching the success of that show. And it's an incredible juggernaut of a show. First of all, it's a wonderfully produced show. 
really, really well done. I think he his influences for that show are like The Wire and Breaking Bad. You know, like he is a, a really incredible writer and director trying to tell this story. Um, but to see to see the incredible audience hook, I, I mean, hook into that show and be passionate about that show, but that it hadn't hit a bigger, broader audience yet. Um, was kind of was kind of something that I had my eye on. I was like, you know what? Let's put that on the CW because I bet that will work when you put it on broadcast TV. Um, and uh, and then you know, and, and then it's funny. Sometimes timing is everything. Then we got the chosen on the cover of TV Guide, and then the cover of Newsweek last week was Jesus Takes Hollywood, right? And and then we see the the success of Sound of Freedom, you know, in in the in theaters. So you know, maybe we we hit culture at just the right time. But uh, it was certainly a, a, a style of content and an audience that I'd spent about a year researching. So uh, it wasn't just kind of a blind idea. I knew uh, I knew that one was going to work. And I think you, directly- you, tweeted, you tweeted that you thought it would work. <laughs> um, you, you gave it, what is it called? A humble, whatever you want to call it. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a positive and a negative in one tweet. That's, that's, pretty, much, that's pretty much what I do. It has Dan's uh, brand, yeah. <laughs> I would say very close, but, but okay. But so but wait, you- I have a, I have a, just a quick follow up on, on that. Yeah. Um, Brad, are you benefiting from the CW picking up the, the show that you were worked on before as a, 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 a founder or. No, 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 no. So the, the, the chosen itself was a kind of, had nothing to do with the company we were working on. It was the guy Dallas who created the chosen Okay, was also a partner in, uh, in this thing that we were, we were uh, funding. No, I've no, absolutely not. Okay, but so you you just mentioned a lot of programming that fits with sort of this moment that you're implying that you guys hit with this, um, and that and that comes five minutes after you said that you didn't view eyeing programming with a conservative bent as being an aspiration. So I'm curious how those things go. Like if Chosen is a massive success for you guys, why wouldn't you then target a more conservative audience? Um, I think. Uh... Look, I think faith and family is a really interesting opportunity that you don't see um, across broadcast television. Um, but I also think horror is an opportunity that you don't see across <laughs> broadcast television. I like trying to find the things that other people aren't doing, right? I'm not one of those guys that says, oh, this is working. Let's make three spinoffs. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a guy that tries Sounds to... familiar. <laughs> I'm a guy that tries to find things that people aren't doing. Like when Shit's Creek... When we did Schitt's Creek, that was not a typical type of comedy that was on TV at the time, that kind of earnestness and that love that that show had. We've seen it now in Ted Lasso and Abbott Elementary and a lot of shows that have followed it. But it was kind of, yeah, it was kind of a different thing when it when it first started. And so I look out there and, and, and I see an opportunity in faith and family. I see an opportunity where people aren't in that area. The Chosen is a wonderful example of it working. And so why wouldn't we try to find a couple of more things? But that... That feels like a Sunday night strategy, not an overall, you know, company strategy. Let's let's talk a little bit about the sports because you mentioned that as being a major shift that didn't exist previously. And so uh, there was obviously the live golf, which brought with it its own baggage and conversational, let's just say stuff, whatever, however one wants to put it. What was and what is the the calculus that you guys have to do in a situation like that between, okay, this is a thing we don't have. This is a space we've never been in before, but also this is a thing that a lot of people come pre-equipped with some fairly, in some cases negative, but generally with opinions on. 
Yeah. So if you're going to operate a successful broadcast business, I think you have to think about news and sports. And sports is a major, major anchor for all broadcast networks. And we didn't have any. And Live Golf was an interesting opportunity that came along at the right time, uh, the right opportunity for them, the right opportunity for us, for all of the reasons that, that everybody knows. Um, if that was the NFL, we would never be able to bid on it, right? We wouldn't be in the conversation. But that one was a, uh, like kind of a, a broadcast network getting into sports for the first time, a league that was, that was just starting, kind of coming together to help grow each other. And it's been an incredible relationship with those guys. And to see, you know, the greatest golfers in the world, as Brooks Kepka or Cam Smith or Dustin Johnson or Sergio Garcia or Phil Mickelson on our air 14 weekends a year is really, really exciting. But what it also did is it actually gave us permission to explore other sports. And it also started a whole bunch of incoming phone calls from all the other leagues that then wanted, you know, broadcast exposure. It's, it's interesting, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing the, the regional sports networks kind of implode. Uh, we're seeing, you know, NBA games on TBS being in 60 million homes now or, or whatever it is as cable goes. Um, sports still really, really needs and wants broadcast distribution to reach that mass audience. NFL games on, on, on broadcast are, what, 40% bigger than what they are on Amazon. When we put Clippers games on KTLA, they're 40% bigger than what they were on, um, on the regional sports network. Like, there's still a power to sports and broadcast. And unlike everybody else, we have shelf space. So that led us to ACC football and basketball. It led us to doing this seven-year deal with NASCAR. And we're not, it led to us picking up inside the NFL that had previously for 40 years been on HBO and Showtime. And we're not done. Um, and um, be above and beyond just the sports of it, it's now CW has, you know, afternoon programming on Saturdays and Sundays, which we've never had before. That brings more circulation through the CW. That brings more people to the CW that maybe has never been to the CW before. People that we can promote our primetime schedule to more. All the things that the CW never had. But the line has always been with sports programming, or at least the caution or concern, is that it's a borrowed audience, that it's not necessarily your network's audience or your brand's audience, it's the sports audience. Mm -hmm. So as you look at kind of where in an ideal world you would want the CW to be when the NASCAR Xfinity deal kicks in in 2025, how would you like the network's programming to be in the same vein as this audience that you're trying to build on the weekends? I think, I, I think as programmers, and we haven't gotten there yet, but as programmers, like these Xfinity races, um, whether they've been on FS1 or USA or Fox or NBC or whatever, these Xfinity races do over a million viewers a race. And if we can pull that audience over to the CW, that's a million potentially new viewers that we can tell about All-American, that we can tell about Sullivan's Crossing, that we can tell about Son of a Critch. Um, that maybe we couldn't have before. The other broadcast networks all have circulation during the day that they can kind of keep pushing to their prime time. Um, you know, we've always just had the two hours of prime at night. And so to have more afternoon flow that we can tell people about um, our other programming is, uh, especially as that programming flavor changes, is, is really strategic and really smart. And, um, and it's our job to make promos and, and convince that audience to come watch something else. You know, uh, 
I want to circle back and talk about some of the stuff that hasn't worked already. Um, you've pulled some of the acquisitions down to earth, fantastic friends and barons. Those were pulled from the schedule almost immediately. You know, you've been there for six months. You've already had to make some tough, very tough decisions. What have you learned about the network uh, so far and what works and what doesn't work? Well, look, it's interesting because it is summer, as we all know. Um, um, huts and putts are down in the summer. Um, we also know that we're in a little households spat. utilizing television for those not uh, uh, familiar what hut means hut levels are. Uh, and we uh, we also know that we're in a little bit of a, a disagreement with uh, Directv right now, which is you know a lot of uh, a lot of households. Um, so, but but we still have ratings targets to hit, etc. These are all shows that were kind of in the library um, when I got here. We had to get them on the air and and do our best with them, and uh, and they didn't work. Uh, some of them didn't work, and you know, I think you gotta you gotta act quickly. We could sit there and have bad ratings for six, eight, ten weeks, or we can make a change, you know, really quickly. And because we're all still, you know, new here, we have we 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 can make those changes, and uh, and and we have a streaming platform where all those episodes can go. So look, I I think what I've learned is you you can't just throw stuff on. You've got to be really, really excited about everything. It is a tough environment, as you know, with a ton of content out there to compete with. And unless you're going to do stuff that you really, really believe in and didn't just acquire for a price, I think you have we have to make really ambitious choices that you feel really good about that can break through in culture and bring in a big audience. Uh, some of those shows that we've pulled, not to blame anybody else or, or, or point to anybody else. Those were shows that were in our library and we had to put them on and they didn't work and we move on. Um, but uh, I don't think you can fill up a schedule just based on price and opportunity alone. We've all kind of gotten to where we are in our careers because we have good instincts for what works and we got to find stuff that we know will work. You know, speaking of that, you know, you, a lot of the things that you've picked up, we can describe them as, as being gently used programming, which is a term that, that I at least started using during the pandemic, when we saw a network like Fox, for example, pick up LA's Finest, which was an original series that Sony made for right. Spectrum Charm. when Spectrum was actually making originals. Um, the show obviously didn't rate very well on Fox, but you've picked up, for example, AMC's 61st Street, mm -hmm. which AMC aired the first season of, they commissioned a second season, and then they dropped it as part of a, a tax write-down. But Knowing that this gently used model has struggled to work on broadcast before, what are your expectations about how these will perform for a network that, that already doesn't get the same viewership close to what like a Fox or an AMC does? Yeah. Um, I guess first, first thing I'll say about that specific title is it's a really well done show. And the second season is really, really great. Um, and Michael B. Jordan is the executive producer of it. And we have an Emmy winning um, actor as, as the lead. And we have an Emmy nominated actor as the second lead. It's certainly a piece of content to be very, very proud of. And when you have a show like All American, which we knew was coming back when we picked that up, we hadn't decided on homecoming or anything yet. All American is a monster of a show. And All American has the highest concentration of African-American audiences all in all of um, broadcast. And we at the time, thought All-American was going to be on the air in the fall. And as I told you, I think at the beginning of this interview, we were trying to find stuff to fill up a schedule. Um, we found a show that we thought would be a great companion for 
All-American, a show that we could be proud of, a show where Michael B. Jordan can help us do press and promote it. And uh, Courtney B. Vance can be booked on all the tonight, all the late night shows if there were late night shows. <laughs> and, and if Courtney uh, B. Vance wasn't on strike right now. That's right. That's right. And if Michael um, B. Jordan and, wasn't on strike right now. Correct. Correct. But this was six months ago. <laughs> right. And uh, and it that was a really, really easy decision. It was a show we loved. It was a show that that is a really big budget and high production value with really amazing, talented people attached. And we thought it would be a great companion for all American in the fall. Um, so that's, that's an ambitious decision. Um, but I think, I think you're right. I think what we were saying before, you can't just pick up stuff to pick up stuff. We have to pick up stuff that we know is, has a chance to cut through and work. And just to sort of a, a last question to wrap for you as a television viewer over 20 years of the CW, give me a CW show that you particularly love where you think I have to find me one of those. LA complex, baby. <laughs> we no, have multiple I... LA complex references in one podcast. So yeah, obviously that, that's the Martin Giro show. Yeah. Um, I was uh, when I was when I ran Much Music in Canada. We did that. That was our show. That uh, that was Martin's very first show after he had done an indie film. Uh, we produced that show at Much Music, and it was I think Mark Pedowitz's first pickup. So right. So the, I, I'm not doing anything that Mark didn't do 20 years ago. Um, no, I, I'm I do love that show. I have a soft spot for that show. I think that show is amazing. Uh, I think Gossip Girl, you know, had was this unbelievable cultural moment. Um, Vampire Diaries was an unbelievable cultural moment. I think when I think of the history of the CW, it's like they have created some of the greatest, some great cultural moment shows. And that whether it's Schitt's Creek or Fleabag or Squid Game or these shows that have just blasted into culture, I mean, I think that's every television executive's dream is to, to find that show, to be a part of that show. And they don't come around very often where you kind of change things and you get everybody talking about it. And uh, so, and the CW has a bunch of them in its, in its history. And so those would be the ones that I would point to, whether it's my, my taste or not, those happen to be my taste, but, uh, but damn, I mean, Gossip Girl was a moment and Vampire Diaries was a moment and Flash was a moment and Riverdale was a moment. And, uh, and we need some of those. Um, is there a specific CW talent that you wish you could bring back to the network in some way, shape, or form? Oh, jeez. No, I don't think I can answer that one. <laughs> There's so many. There's so many to choose from. My head just keeps going to all the Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us again. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart on Amazon, Strange Planet on Apple, and Season 3 of Only Murders in the Building. Dan, what you got? There are options, uh, but we'll we'll try to keep this week a tiny bit more focused. Uh, as I might have mentioned, fewer shows. So, so maybe the ongoing drinking game of Dan says there's too much damn TV to keep track. You might spend several weeks or months sober. My apologies. My sincere apologies. <laughs> It's not my fault. I wish to get you drunk, but there's nothing I can do. Uh, well, I, think I, I could just say that I'm not a critic, and then there's a shot right there. Perfect. 
There Perfect. you go. That is all. That is what this podcast is all about. We come out on Friday so that people can drink their way into the weekend. That is that is what we do. It is who we are. Uh, <laughs> I believe I talked about it last week, uh, but I'll just say once again that the best thing premiering on TV this week is season three of Reservation Dogs, the third and final season. The first two episodes of the new season are already out. They are both really, really good. I would also speak very highly of next week's episode, um, which all I will say of that is dear lady, which means what it means. Um, so yeah, so let's, let's talk about three shows this week. That seems pretty, pretty reasonable, pretty contained. Uh, let's start just for fun with, uh, the lost flowers of Alice Hart, mostly cause it's the thing that's premiering first. It's premiering on Friday on Amazon. It is based on a novel by Australian writer Holly Ringland. Uh, I do not know the book, but I have a very good sense of the book now from the TV series because the TV series feels like somebody attempting to adapt a rather florid, pun intended, uh, literary novel and not quite knowing how to do it. Um, The series was adapted by Sarah Lambert, who wrote all the episodes and directed entirely by Glendon Avon. And probably the biggest names in the series are Sigourney Weaver, not typically known as an Australian star, um, but she kind of does an accent, but mostly, and I give her full credit for this, it's a soft accent. So when she isn't doing it at all or is barely doing it, you really don't notice, and that's entirely fine. Uh, And then uh, Alicia Debnam uh, Carey, who people, of course, love from The Hundred, and uh, so, you know, she she's got a fan base. And I think probably that some people either didn't realize or only realized in random interviews that she's Australian. So she's doing a her native accent here, which is nice to hear. Neither one is really, to my mind, the best part of the series. So, so the plot of the series is it is about a uh, young girl named Alice Hart, uh, who grows up in a small town on the coast of Australia. Her mother is loving and reads to her from books and uh, teaches her all about flowers. And her father, while he is brilliant in some ways, is also horribly abusive. Um, and both of the two parents die in a fire, a fire that the girl blames herself for. She's very briefly orphaned, but then out of nowhere comes the grandmother she never knew she had, played by Sigourney Weaver, who brings her back to her farm. It is a flower farm, um, both literally and metaphorically. They raise flowers, but also the farm is a refuge for abused women, either a coincidence or not a coincidence, uh, who everyone refers to as flowers also. And so... It is all about how flowers say the things that we cannot say, and also about the relationship between silence and abuse and finding your voice, etc. So I mentioned that Sigourney Weaver is doing a a soft Australian accent, but she's fine. Uh, She's she's playing sort of a character who on one hand is doing something very heroic. This farm is is has been a refuge to dozens of women who were victims of abuse. Uh, But also, she has done some things involving lying and involving exclusion of the truth that have caused a lot of trouble, and a lot of trouble that if anyone would just tell the truth for five minutes at the beginning of the first episode of the series, it would not need to go for seven episodes. It probably does not need to go for seven episodes anyway. I would say it has roughly 
um, you know, I would say two. It's got a movie's worth of plot is what it's got in terms of plot. Otherwise, it's a lot of very, very, very beautifully shot pictures of flowers along with handwritten text saying what the flowers represent because flowers speak for people when people cannot speak. You know, you you send them for condolences, you send them for love, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so th- there's a lot of that. There's a lot of relying heavily on the metaphors to the degree that it becomes a little exhausting. It's also, again, it's gorgeously shot, but the frequency with which things in the show are taking place exclusively at either sunrise or sunset is it, it borders on hilarious because at certain points people are telling people I'll meet you, I'll meet you at this crater out in the desert be there at 7:30 cuz it'll be really beautiful when the sun sets and everyone is just like okay sure we'll do another we'll have another sunset party because that's apparently a really gorgeous time of day all across Australia and heaven knows if this show was sponsored by the Australia Tourism Board it's very effective i absolutely went on expedia and glanced at flights to australia let me assure you, I'm not going to Australia anytime soon. But yeah, so it's it's strained. But anyway, so I mentioned that Sigourney Weaver and uh, Alicia Carey are not really the highlights. For me, the, the highlight was um, Eli- Elila Brown, I believe is her name. And I think she was 12 years old when she played the main character. Alicia Carey plays the older version of the character. And for the first three episodes, the character is basically, uh, she can't speak either because of trauma or because of physical trauma. It's a great performance. It's it's just like a, a stunningly good child performance. It, it is it is subtle. It is layered. It's a performance that has nothing to fall back on because there's no dialogue and and just a great performance. And I and I can't wait to see if someone is going to find something for her to do if, if she likes this here acting thing. Anyway, to me, she ultimately was more than anything the reason to watch it, that and to get a very, very good sense of pretty places to hang out in Australia. So that is that is nice. And that is uh, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, which I think is really probably only so-so, but has good things about it and premiering on Friday on Amazon. Uh, let us skip to a returning show, Only Murders in the Building, uh, which first season arrived with a ridiculous amount of hype obviously steve martin plus martin short plus uh selena gomez come on a lot of hype lots of awards all of that second season a little bit less so uh you know fewer awards much less rapturous appeal etc to me that kind of also reflected the quality of the show i thought the first season was very very good i did not like it as much as everyone else did or many other people did some other people Whatever the case is, I liked it. Uh, What I thought was interesting about the show or successful about the show or made the show special was that it was simultaneously a parody of true crime and our obsession with true crime, but also just a really, really good mystery. And it was a mystery that you could follow through the entire season and where there were red herrings and where the resolution was fairly interesting and fairly motivated by the characters. It just worked ultimately really well. The second season, I thought the mystery was much less successful, but but I thought it was funny and I thought it had some quirky things to say about podcast obsession and kind of tying it in with, with people's obsession with the show in the first season, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so the third season, the mystery isn't very interesting. It isn't very funny, but it is... 
a fairly effective story about loneliness and people needing people in New York City. Like, I think it is a much more poignant season than the first two. And the first two seasons had some poignant moments, uh, but there are there are relationships between the characters that are actually interesting. And it helps that uh, one of the potential love interests or new additions to the cast is is played by a, a relative newcomer to TV, uh, Meryl Streep. Uh, you might remember her. She was in the second season of Big Little Lies. It's possible that if the second season of Big Little Lies had been better received, she might have gotten more TV work and you would have heard more from her in the past couple of years. But anyway, so Meryl Streep, you've seen her before, trust me. Uh, she's She plays an actress who is in people who saw the end of the uh, second season finale um, know that basically Martin Short's character is directing a Broadway play, a murder mystery. And in the first episode, the uh, rather the first performance, the star of the show played by Paul Rudd, who appears throughout the season in flashbacks uh, and is as, as close as the show comes to funny this season. Uh, he's, he's murdered. And so it's not just murders in the building anymore. It's now just general murders. But a lot of what makes the show work is kind of the the idea of people needing people, which makes them the luckiest people in the world, uh, but people needing people, reaching out to people, and wondering what happens when people's support systems vanish. And so whether that is the three main characters, and I continue to think that Martin Short and, uh, and uh, Steve Martin and Selena Gomez are all very good, uh, what happens when you know, if they bicker, what happens if they fall apart? What happens if they have a podcast, but people aren't pulling their weight, et cetera, et cetera. It's, there's something sweet to it. And that's kind of what kept me going here more than anything else, because the murder mystery, really not very exciting. Uh, the humor kind of flaccid, like it's just a lot of very obvious Broadway type, ha ha ha, inside theater laughing, which the show had already done plenty of without needing to go quite as literal as this season. Uh, so, so yeah, there, there's still stuff here, but it definitely isn't, it isn't working on all cylinders is what I will say, but it is working on some cylinders. Um, and so, yeah, that premieres next week. So that would be Hulu as always for Only Murders in the Building. That would be the eighth and then last but not least is Strange Planet, which sounds like it should be a nature documentary, but it is not. It is an Apple TV Plus series, animated series, uh, which is premiering on August 9th. And you probably already know something about it because the Strange Planet uh, webcomic by Nathan W. Pyle, it's one of those things that just gets passed along. You've, you've almost certainly seen it in meme form. Uh, the series is co-created with Dan Harmon. And the premise, as best I can describe it, is that it, and this is also completely the premise of the of the cartoon as well, is that it's a parallel alien planet that has evolved in many ways similar to Earth uh, with a race of humanoid non-binary uh, people and they have formed a very literal language system and so by expanding on 
their language system and how literal it is. It's a way of basically examining the banality of everyday human life through a different prism. That's that's as best I can say it. And it sort of finds empathy with human behaviors and human existence through these alien characters and their very literal way of describing things. It's not a heavily serialized cartoon, and the series is also not heavily serialized. It is it is very vignette though characters recur throughout, but because the characters look very, very similar, there were several times in the six episodes that I watched where I wasn't completely sure if I'd met the characters before. But what I can say is that part of why the comic has done as well as it is and has been passed around as memes for years and years is that it it does have a perspective. It has a perspective on human behavior and the absurdity of our lives, but also the sincere meaning behind a lot of the strange things we do. And a lot of the, if you took a step back and re-examined the way that we behave, the things that we do, our rituals, our clothing choices, our coded words, if you took a step back and could actually see them clearly, you would see this is a funny thing, this is a sad thing. And and I think that works. And I think that there's an emotional side to this series that I think works really, really well. I think it's a I think it's a sweet show. I think it's a show with a lot of empathy. Is it funny? Yeah, sometimes it's actually funny. It does require a lot of attention because you have to be paying attention to the strange ways that things are phrased or the strange names that people give to things. Uh, because if you don't, then you wouldn't find it funny that they were being described in the way that they are. And so you can't just have it on in the background. Uh, but lots of animated shows are are like that. It's This is not one of those shows that is quite so much the, ooh, look, there's a background reference kind of thing. Or, ooh, look, if you don't listen, you're going to miss the hilarious pop culture reference to things. But, but you'll miss a lot of the subtlety to the writing. And there's a lot of subtlety to the writing. Again, I've seen six episodes. Uh, our colleague Angie will be reviewing it, and I think I probably appreciated that I was watching it, um, again, paying full attention, but not needing to take notes, just kind of taking it in, which sometimes I enjoy doing, and I thought it worked fairly well for that. So uh, if you like the comic, if you've seen the comic, and it's the sort of, yeah, you've, you've seen it. It's it's the aliens who are describing Earth life in weirdly literal terms. You You know it with a little bit of Dan Harmon touch, which means that like half the cast of, of uh, community pops up as voice talent, but also there's just a lot of voice talent, a lot of big guest stars, a lot of kind of surprising guest stars, maybe not that big. I, I probably over, <laughs> I probably oversold that. And, and when it just turns out that you watch an episode and someone sings beautifully and you go, who was it? And it turns out to be Cynthia Erivo. You know, to me, that's a cool guest star. But, 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 but if you listen and go, "Oh my God, is that Adele or something?" No, it's not. So anyway, don't want to oversell things. But anyway, so Strange Planet premieres next week on Apple TV Plus. I liked it. Uh, also premiering next week on Hulu, season three of Only Murders in the Building. I was okay with it, but watch out for that Meryl Streep. She's going places. And uh, the Lost Flowers of Alice Hart this Friday on. Amazon, it's okay, but watch out for the nine-year-old co-star. Actually, she was 12 when she 
did the series. Anyway, character nine, who cares? I, I think that's kind of where the show's hook is. She's only in the first three episodes. So, you know, maybe you'll be interested. And of course, Reservation Dogs, best show on TV at the moment. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter, Facebook, Blue Sky, wherever your podcasting platforms and social media whatever intersect come say hi she's at snooted everywhere that's snooted with two o's i'm at the fine print f-i-e-n everywhere uh so yes come say hi to us but if you have questions for future mailbag segments be they mini or otherwise you can email us at tv's top five at thr.com that's tv's top five the numeral five at thr.com until next week leslie until next week dan With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.